0: This season of the Sober Curious podcast is supported by Seedlip, the world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirits. Crafted with zero alcohol, zero sugar, and that means zero calories, Seedlip spirits solve the dilemma of what to drink when you're not drinking, whether it's for the night, for a month, or forever. As a non-drinker, it never feels great when the only options are water or sugary sodas and mocktails. And now you can skip the hangovers without feeling left out when it comes to your social life. Head to seedlipdrinks.com and use the code SOBERCURIOUS, all in caps, for 20% off your next purchase and follow at Seedlip Social on Instagram for more ways to enjoy Seedlip. And welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast, a place for conversations about living a more conscious, present and connected life. I am your host, Ruby Warrington, and my guest this week is Peter Grayson. A clinician and addiction specialist, Pete is currently the executive director of Big Vision, a sober community for young adults in New York. He's also been a pioneering voice in the field of holistic recovery and has over 10 years experience working in outpatient rehab centers and one-to-one with individuals navigating their recovery. This episode was inspired by a question I received from a reader by email that I didn't feel fully qualified to answer pete and i have been getting to know each other a bit and after i turned to him for advice responding to this inquiry i decided it would be beneficial to record an ask the expert edition of this podcast as noted multiple times throughout my book i am not a medical professional or a trained addiction specialist as a journalist by trade it's my job to conduct research from multiple sources to formulate an argument either for or against whatever i'm writing about which alongside my own lived experience is what forms the foundation of Sober Curious. And since the book came out and the conversation I started there has developed, I've needed to do some additional research, which is where Pete and his expertise comes in. We cover so many important topics in this conversation, and if you have a question that we don't get to, I would love to hear it. You can DM me on Instagram at Ruby Warrington, and I'll find a way to address it either personally, with another podcast like this, or in a social media post or newsletter. For today, this is Peter Grayson. Pete, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you.
1: I have been as well.
0: Because I realize in my research for Sober Curious much of which was you know my lived experience of the past decade of just like living this path and being sober curious and then hosting events in the space and reading all the books I could find um, and you know speaking to various people kind of in the field I realized I didn't actually sit down with the kind of addiction expert or anyone who'd been working in the field of addiction like closely with people actually navigating this path at all (laughs) you know which I guess was kind of an omission although it didn't feel like it was something that was missing from the book I was able to find many answers to my own questions obviously that there have been certain things that have come up along the way that I do not feel qualified to answer and this episode was inspired by one woman in particular who wrote out who'd written to me with a, a question about a situation that she was going through. I'm just going to throw that question in there randomly at some point during the interview. She didn't necessarily want her situation to be broadcast as a podcast, but it inspired me to um, to invite you to come and perhaps help me address some of the questions that have that have come up on this path, be it at events or be it on social media or be it people who've attended my retreats, where I just know that It'll be so valuable to hear from somebody who's got now over, you know, over a decade's worth of experience of working with people who are grappling with different addictions um, to kind of like get into some of the nitty gritty. So... NATO. How does that sound?
1: It sounds great. And, and, you know, when we first brought it up, it was quite an honor, and and it stoked me out to, to have the opportunity to do so. The disclaimer I want to give, like we discussed, is, yes, you know, whilst I've been in this field for 10 years, licensed clinician, just want to kind of qualify that this is a sea full of a lot of experts and and I certainly don't have all the answers and a lot of times I might not have the answer but where my expertise might come into play is being able to help somebody navigate through the problem or to find the solution with who might be the proper expert at the time so I'll always do my best I'll give you the you know the best feedback I could give but I just might not have the answers uh and just want to be very conscious of that.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. And it would be great. And I'll just say for anybody listening, this is probably a good episode to have like a notepad or maybe if you're going to share other resources where people can can also look as part of their path. It could be a good episode just to have like, there's going to be some nice information shared, I think. You know? That's a great
1: idea. Well,
0: thank you for sharing that. And I also think even just you saying that brings it back again. And this is something I talk about on this podcast all the time about how individual the process of recovery if you want to call it that but of just addressing an addiction is you know there are so many different ways into it and so many different things that will resonate with different people depending on multiple factors and we can get into some what those factors and nuances might be as well I think absolutely um so the place I would love to dive in is what's the difference between dependence and addiction
1: that is such a great question and <laughs> way to drop the bomb, right? Out of the even as I was gate. saying, I
0: was like, okay, is this even, poss- is it even possible? I,
1: let's, I'd love to see. Well, what I think song. what it does is it provides a great kind of lens into philosophy behind, you know, whether or not we call things addiction, dependency, abuse, misuse, wh- wh- however we want to frame it. There are some greater questions sometimes, you know, at heart, which is. You know, are we talking about the primary problem or symptoms of greater problems and is this a reflective or indicative kind of situation that's ref- you know, it just I think it's a very loaded question that without the context of what's going on becomes somewhat impossible to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's typically a why beneath the what? You know, why is what's going on going on um, versus just what is going on now is the person using, how much are they using, under what you know, circumstances, and if you look at a lot of the diagnostic criteria, it becomes very binary and linear, where a lot of times this is very complex, interwoven, and asymmetrical, so it becomes a very hard context to evaluate, but you know there are some Scales where you can make, let's say, very definitive differences with dependency, in particular, if you're looking at chemical dependency. But even that can get misunderstood. You know, spent years, even from a very clinical perspective, starting out in this field, worked in detox units. And um, when you look at chemical dependency and, and, and what then deem somebody appropriate for detox, It's kind of, you know, limited on one hand because you're looking through a very specific aperture, you know, and what qualifies as chemical dependency, but then you look at other things like cannabis and other medications or drugs or substances that people use and and they're not deemed chemically dependent, but is there a chemical dependency aspect? I still don't think we know and Mm -hmm. there's still a lot of research out there. Dependency becomes so granular that it's hard to define, so... I think even the challenge of giving an answer in this question is indicative of how complex of a subject it is. Um, but I think it really just points back to looking at things through a different lens, where when we look at addiction, dependency, however we're framing the problem, that's the what, but what we want to really look at more is the why beneath that.
0: That makes some sense, I suppose, <laughs> but in in a way because I, I yeah I haven't been able to find the answer. I, that, that answer didn't immediately become apparent in all of the research I was doing. Meaning, the, meaning the reading that I was doing, the reports I was looking at, addiction, dependence, these words I saw them being used interchangeably, well, for you. as you would, as you said, you know, substance abuse, misuse. that's sort of. It's, um, yeah, it's nebulous.
1: It is. <laughs> uh, and if you even look at the etymology of the terms themselves, you can see how it supports that, you know, nebula, whatever the, the proper conjugation uh, <laughs> we is. We were
0: both doing weird kind of floaty maneuvers with our hands yeah. to describe what this situation seems like.
1: <laughs> but there's, you know, to that point, is there's reason why there's been an almost evolution of terminology as well to kind of reinforce the theories behind why they're being called different terms so to a large degree the term addiction from a I don't want to keep saying clinical I mean that mm. sounds kind of pretentious but from a more technical standpoint the term is is obsolete you know it doesn't have a real basis it's not in any diagnostic manual anymore um, but it's certainly a term that has a lot of understanding a lot of use and the most important thing is if that's what's communicated and that's what people are talking about then we've got to kind of unpack it and understand it for what it is Yeah. Uh, so back to you know how do you really define them it's kind of tough because at the same time their own definitions or their own uses or appropriateness has changed as well over time
0: interesting so going back to what you said about what's the why underneath the what perhaps a Perhaps a better question to ask oneself. I'm thinking about the sober, curious kind of questions. Am I addicted to this? Am I dependent on this? Maybe the question to be asking yourself is like, what's the impact of this substance on my my
1: Absolutely. life, on
0: my on my on my overall well being, and in my life? Yeah,
1: right. And you know, with another aspect being so individualized, when we look at the individual, then and really kind of try and from maybe more of a meta perspective, look at what's going on, what's their story. Maybe what they're dependent on is just medicating their own depression, medicating their own pain. What if that pain didn't exist? Mm -hmm. Does it mean that they wouldn't have a problem? Not necessarily, but I can't say right off the bat that they would. You know, it just means there are different ways to explore things. and. It just becomes very, you know, back to complex when we're looking at what's going on with the individual and, mm. you know, why are they doing what they're doing most mm. importantly. Mm. Mm. And
0: I just, I, I actually just interviewed someone that's probably going to be on a later, I'm not sure what episode it'll air in, but he had an opioids addiction and was talking about how with opioids and with nicotine, for example, two of the sort of top five big, most addictive substances, regular use repeated use will lead to inevitably a chemical dependence Mm -hmm. is that the same with alcohol is that the same with other substances too
1: yes um and also in the ways in which you do form the chemical dependency also changes i mean systemically we're constantly learning about different effects and levels of dependency a lot of times we just look at dependency on you know, a singular system level, you know, from a cardiac perspective, from a neurological perspective, but maybe not from a hormonal perspective or other, you know, chemical elements in the, in the body. Uh, but there's a dependency that's formed and a cycle that's formed. Um, mm. Look at somebody who just stops taking an antidepressant, for example, you know, and some of the withdrawal symptoms they exhibit. But nowhere in the conversation is chemical dependency really discussed with common antidepressant. I'm not anti-antidepressant by any means. Um, but just to point that out to put things in context, back to alcohol in particular, you know alcohol is one of the most um, chemically dependent forming substances when used chronically on the body uh, that well, I, I don't know if I can qualify it the most, but that poses some of the most acute dangers to the body in terms of withdrawal symptoms and the effect that those withdrawal symptoms would have. People far more qualified than I am that can discuss the real, you know, the biology and the physiology behind some of those dependency factors. Uh, But a large percentage of people in detox units, rightfully so, are there for alcohol, you know, withdrawal treatment um, because it can be so intense. Um, But then you look at other layers of dependency, and this is why it kind of goes back to being such an interesting question because you know when you look at it on, let's say. Diagnostic or intake criteria for a detox unit. Okay, certain things wouldn't qualify; they wouldn't meet criteria. But does it mean it doesn't exist or you know whatever? Absolutely not. And you know certain other layers of alcohol dependency that form. You know the way the body becomes accustomed to metabolizing sugars and you know, cravings for sugar. Uh, the way it just might affect your overall metabolism and of so. The, the the short answer to your question is yes. The long answer is that spiel I just gave. you.
0: <laughs> I love it. This is why my podcast is so great. Because if I was doing this interview with you, <laughs> and I was going to write it out, we might not be able to to include the full long answer. But now people can hear the whole deal and under, come to understand. I think how just how very complex this whole issue is you know and I think um and I get like I, I mentioned that so for anybody who's kind of like struggling with those questions there's a reason because there's there is no obvious clear answer you know
1: yeah and it also kind of puts the brings up another interesting point point, mm-hmm. uh, which is what's part of the solution also and a lot of time you know, I like using the word aperture because that's kind of like the direction we're looking at the, the indicative of our mindset, our paradigms, uh, whatever conceptions we're bringing into it. And you know, there's this tremendous misconception sometimes that, well, if I get over the dependency, I'm cured or I'm fine. Like that's the primary hurdle to get over. So sometimes just talking about dependency or is it, or isn't there, uh, becomes a red herring, you know, uh, but what does that even mean? you Because know, it's going back to the why anyway. Yeah. you know, And what purpose is it serving? Uh, so yeah, a really kind of interesting topic. And, and something that can really be the center of a lot of interesting philosophical debates too. That I don't feel there's a right or wrong answer to. But mm. I think just valuable viewpoints to mm. just explore.
0: So again, coming back to the important thing to be thinking about is... Why am I using this? What purpose is it serving me? And how can I begin to address that underlying why? Right. In, in, as part of a more kind of holistic idea about like, what are all the different ways this is impacting me and all the different ways that I can be addressing it. Exactly. Yeah. So what about then um, the idea that certain people are more prone to addiction or certain people are more prone to developing really unhealthy behaviours around different substances or even different behaviours, you know, the idea that addiction might be genetic. Um, What are your thoughts on that and and given your experience of working with individuals, what sort of patterns have you seen, if there are any, in terms of the sorts of things that predispose a person to having more problematic usage, let's say?
1: Absolutely, there are a lot. Yeah. And there's also, you know, a lot of times a a differentiation between where there's data and real hard evidence and where there's maybe just anecdotal evidence. Mm. Uh, And we have to kind of evaluate the research or the evidence that's out there. But nonetheless, yes, it points down to a lot of framework that we do know a lot about.
0: So then, what are some of the things that might predispose a person to developing more problematic behaviours or usage with a different with a substance, be it alcohol, be it pills, be it marijuana, whatever it might be? Is it genetics? Is it biological? Is it more circumstantial? Is it about their family of origin, or maybe it's just that they're going through a difficult set of life circumstances? Like, what are the things that you see that kind of like um, that are typical within these groups of people?
1: Absolutely. So back to that almost two paths of anecdotal versus yeah. you know hard data, you know, evidence. Um, first one to pick is the genetic component. You know the the verdict is still out tremendously. Like, are there specific genes that are isolated and identified that we now you know can really decode and understand? We might be getting there. But at the same time, is there very clear-cut data and statistics about, well, if this is the case, what's the likelihood and statistical uh, outcome? Then? And a very clear path and narrative comes, you use the keyword predisposed. So is there a hereditary element? You know, Is a genogram a critical aspect of assessment and evaluation? Absolutely. But can we say there's X and Y gene that does this, and if we address that? Probably, and there's tremendous research being done even now. There are some specific genes that are being identified and even some vaccines that are being explored mm-hmm. on some levels. Again, some people far more qualified to comment and talk about that than I. Um, but that's one really exciting forefront. Um, other you know, clear... Cut connectors between mental health, you know, and, and people who are diagnosed with specific disorders. How much more likely and prone they are to be predisposed or to develop issues. Uh, pain, another thing. Um, even now, with with the opioid crisis and how that's really shifted to the lens, or shifted the lens towards practices and prescribing practices. Just looking at ways in which people are prescribed medications or their. Their overall treatment and conditions are managed or the lack thereof. So there can be very, very kind of specific feeders and and almost mappable or or maybe more aptly put screenable elements to be aware of that's tremendously helpful. Uh, The other side of it is there are a lot of high-risk situations, a lot of more anecdotal sides that we can draw a lot of lines to and conclusions about but I think it all goes back to that picture of the whys beneath the what's and and you know ways in which we can screen it and I think well this might be getting a little off topic but it comes back in in that nebulous way and I think some of the greater conversations we might be having a few years from now when things shift more into the preventative early intervention models and one thing, We've talked about this. I, I talk about it all the time. But, you know, when we're talking about addiction, dependency, substance abuse treatment, kind of the world in which I operate primarily in, all we're doing is treating the heart attacks after they happen. You know, We're responding post-crisis. There's been more and more um, attention being looked at on the other side, but not enough Mm. And, and I think as we get to know more about these things that we're talking about and identifying, the more we're going to focus, just like we do with medicine, physical medicine. You know, The majority of practices in physical medicine revolve around early interventions and preventive medicine, not you know, the post-acute yeah, treatment. not the
0: ER room visit. Yeah, exactly. So you mean the more we can actually begin to spot in our own lives and also in the lives of our loved ones, the early indicators that this might be becoming something that's a problem, we can intervene or we can address it, whether it's in ourselves or within the people around us.
1: There are just certain things that make sense. Look, if somebody, if we know somebody is suffering from certain mental health issues, if they suffer from chronic pain, if, if yes, there's a family history, if they're survivors of trauma and, and you know, what's being unpackaged on the mental health forefront of the understanding of the effects of trauma on an individual and early childhood experiences uh, is tremendous. So, when we apply that in this field, too, it gets us to understand so much more, and we're still you know, not there yet, I don't think, mm. and being able to map things out as well as we want to be, but I guess trying to bring it back to your question, you know, is the potential there to really create a good mapping process behind screening, mm. early interventions, risk factors, identification, vulnerabilities, and most importantly, at, you know, almost like if that was a matrix, you know, at given points, what would be effective interventions? What mm. would be effective things to do? Tremendous impact.
0: Mm, which I think, like you say, hopefully that's the way that we're going. You know, hopefully that is going to be, de- that's going to develop over the,
1: over the years it is. to come. Mm. It is the way we're going. Um, a lot of people in this field, in this space are, are moving in that direction, which is really exciting to see. Um, and also a lot of other countries, you mm. know, that have approached... The understanding of treatment, the understanding of addressing on societal systemic levels what these things are, Um, you know, stigmatization plays such a huge role in all of this. And, And back to, you know, nuances and subtext when we're talking about trying to understand these things or or defined terms, we can't strip away those stigmatizations and those nuances or preconceptions that a lot of people have. So Sometimes when we ask very direct questions about, you know, how do you feel about addiction? Do you understand it's a disease? Things like that. They might answer very directly painting one picture, but when you kind of try and, in, you know, get more nuance to it, that you come up with a very different paradigm that, And perception that, okay, you know, maybe those stigmatizations really are very powerful and still Mm. very present as well. Right,
0: exactly. Uh, And as much as we can say that some of that's changing, they're still so deeply ingrained. It might take a few generations of openly talking about and openly doing things differently for those stigmas to really be uprooted and unwound. yeah. 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 So then, in terms of you know another thing that a lot of people come to the sober curious table with is how do I know if this is problem drinking, you know, and like what are some of the what are some of the I mean there are various tests that you can do online and it's really funny I keep reading articles with. British journalists mainly who were kind of like unpacking exactly unit by unit and how many drinks they're drinking and trying to analyse whether this is problem drinking or if they were drinking 10 units more a week that would be problem drinking. Um, and I just think, you know, what what are, what are some of the more sort of... Um, human realistic intuitive ways that we can diagnose for ourselves like is this really something that's become a problem and because it might not be presenting as a problem to the extent that you know I got a DUI or my partner left me or I need a drink in the morning how can someone really begin to understand yes this is a problem for me yes it's time to do something about it
1: That, Ruby, I think, is one of the most brilliant things that Sober Curious has brought to this space, is the most human way in which to unpack it that Mm. I've seen before, um, up until this point. Because you're framing it in the relationship, in a sense. And you're framing it in a very kind of compassionate, realistic, for lack of a better word, mindful context. So... You know, we go back to what I was saying earlier about things being kind of very ideological, stigmatized, and assumptive. Um, it makes it very hard to kind of self-examine and identify them uh, when we try to really understand things on a more compassionate level. And and by the way, let me just go back to the why beneath the what. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the brilliance of it is is using drinking as one indicator. You know, because very often. The C we're talking about are maladaptions, you know. So substance use, misuse, abuse, whatever we're talking about is a maladaption. Eating disorder, sex addictions, gambling, whatever it might be, self-harm behavior. Uh, So these maladaptions then take place for a reason. Exploring the why, but finding, you know, a very identifiable, human, compassionate way that kind of gives back to that word, aperture, you know, a way in which to examine it with a a different mindset, maybe. Um, Mm -hmm. I found, especially in clinical work in the past, you know, when somebody could identify with maybe not being broken, but needing to be fixed, there was something much different about that than, you know, I'm broken, I'm defective, I'm this, I'm that label. Mm -hmm. And Here's the preordained, you know, course that I have to take, and, and everything's already spelled out. It made it. There were a lot of obstacles with being able to identify and explore that on a personal level. But things like sober curious or ways that give us a portal to at least have a starting ground to evaluate, to explore, um, and frame. Most importantly,
0: mm, yeah, it's, I think what you the, what you're describing it's the. Um, um something I've already oh, well, I don't know if I even really intended this what I was writing, So be Curious, but I've something that I've had reflected back at me as to what it's helped people do is to really trust hands down their own experience rather than a quiz they find online or something they read about in a book. Like, this is what makes you an alcoholic or this is what makes problem drinking. No, I trust that the fact that I wake up with a hangover that's a problem for me and that's enough of a reason for me to define this as a problem and get, therefore get help or therefore quit or whatever it might be, you know?
1: Yeah. And I think at times in a, I will completely contradict myself. Second (laughs) disclaimer, you know, so on one hand, I I don't like looking at things in a binary way and like looking at the complexities of things, but I guess kind of just like with certain things, technology, there is binary programming at the root of something, Mm. um, so sometimes there is a binary element you know and it's kind of interesting with some evaluation and reflection when you look at you know do I just know that something's off yeah. yes or no question you know there's only one answer one possible word for that answer I this is you know pulling out of the air you know what would the statistic be in answering but but anecdotally i would hypothesize based on my experience you know nine out of ten people would say yes i know something's wrong something's off what it is i don't know to what extent what that means i don't know but that binary element is a huge starting point and back to things like sober curious or other more kind of humane i think very just Reachable identifiable uh, mechanisms in which to explore that uh, are game changer mm. because there's so much that's you know back to mindset you know well here's another tangent that I think is relative in some ways when we look at back to like the numbers and the statistics that you know the the dependent the the chronics the alcohol use disorder severe you're looking at a very small segment statistically of the population when you you look at the other concentric circles of you know misuse other aspects of problems people who might not even enter diagnostic criteria but you know something's out of order you know back into that whole disease versus disorder debate Mm -hmm. um, it becomes really really complex again
0: But I just love the simplicity of what you just brought up. Like, (laughs) is something in your life not feeling great? Yes. (laughs) Well, from there, let's remove some of the things that might be the thing that's not great. Maybe alcohol is one of those things you remove for a while. See, is it the alcohol? Or is the alcohol actually just masking something else that's not feeling great? And then you can go, okay, well, I took the alcohol away and this still doesn't feel great. So now we need to look at this, right? It becomes an un... Like a... Yeah, you're sort of like peeling back the layers of what the actual doesn't feel great thing is. And
1: back to, you know, one of my missions in all of this is to take that aperture off that almost, you know, singular, I don't want to say demographic, but that singular niche of the most acute the most severe yeah. but that's where everything is kind of determined out of yeah. and that's where the paradigms and the mindsets and associations and identification stem from so back to when you have an individual who's contemplating things or we look at things from that stages of change model if that then becomes the picture of can i identify with that that severe that most acute element i mean back to nuances and granularity from you know a whole litany of ways in which we just know that there's going to be a lot of barriers to being able to kind of try and draw parallels to that. Yeah. If you look at it in a very humane way, you know, let's put all that aside. Just, is there an issue? Is there a problem? Things, you know, out of order. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It, comes on my, you know. it becomes very simple actually then. It becomes uh, very uh, not at all complex. Right. <laughs> I'm pausing this episode to tell you about my next Sober Curious Retreat, which is happening October 23rd to 25th, 2020, at the Omega Institute in upstate New York. This is an opportunity to do some deeper work around what it means to be sober curious. Whether you're just beginning on this path, or have already been examining your relationship to alcohol for some time. I'll be guiding participants through a series of carefully curated workshops with the aim of helping you unpack some of the deeper whys behind your drinking so that you can form some effective and individual why knots going forward. It's also a great opportunity to get connected to other people on this path and to have some fun with it too. To learn more, go to eomega.org forward slash workshops forward slash sober hyphen curious. I'll include the link in the show notes to this episode and you can also find it in my Instagram profile at ruby warrington now back to pete so let's talk a bit about um alcohol is, alcoholism is a progressive disease right and that it will ultimately get worse and worse and worse and worse do all addictions dependencies incidences of alcohol abuse let's use alcohol as the example here um inevitably develop into more severe conditions if if the usage isn't arrested, if it isn't, if there isn't a kind of like this line is another drawn in the point
1: of debate, another mm. point of continued exploration, uh, and I can't say I have the answer definitively, yes or no. I could say how I used to answer that question was very definitive, especially you know the way in which we were trained and way in which you know, really more of the. The traditional treatment system supports that original training and paradigm and ideology. Yes, it would have a very specific answer, and that answer would be yes. Mm. You know, full stop, simple as that. Back to the nuances, the granulars, and the individual dynamics of it, and really trying to understand very objectively what's going on can't really say yes so quick anymore and there's you know back to the statistics uh, there, there, there are some statistics put out there I'm not quoting exactly so forgive me but it's something like 80% of people who when examined have an issue with the substance are able to self-recover and do some type of self-management you mm. know they're not typically talked about because they're not coming into this aperture you mm-hmm. know uh, The most acute and whatever so a lot of you know imagine what life was like before the self-help movement before the fitness movement you know when people were just trying to get into shape when people were trying to just embed themselves uh so the verdict's still out you know and even down to things and and by the way even though i you know really enjoy looking at these things and subscribe to a lot of unconventional Maybe beliefs. I say unconventional because they might not fit traditional models. I still, at times, feel challenged talking about it in an open context because you know there is that vulnerability as well. You know, for some individuals, mm-hmm. yes, you know, there's you know the progressive element is very simple and it's going to continue. For other individuals. It becomes complex you know and, and then there are other protocols that are put into place you know using medical marijuana at times or, or other substances or is there a possibility that somebody is dependent on one substance but not another um, I can't say I have the answer to that question uh, you can say there are definitely ways to look at it that are worth evaluating uh, but all of that being said, and then at the same time, going back to what we were saying earlier about dependency, that brings on another element that is very back to the binary and simple that, yes, from a chronic and progressive standpoint and a chemical standpoint, the more in which you use something and the further you progress, the further you know, progress. Yeah. The more severe the situation, the more severe the more whatever the issues that are presenting are are probably going to just progress even further to the more severe, more acute.
0: Which sort of makes sense, and I love there are two. There were two, and thank you for being open about being vulnerable. That being a vulnerable thing to talk about, coming you know from the sort of medical establishment because I mean I think Adi Jaffe in the interview that I did with him said some similar things about you know many people who have had substance abuse disorders are able to use that thing unproblematically in the future and that feels like such a kind of hot potato thing to put out there however statistically it's proven out, right? Statistically, it's shown that that is the case. And that's, I think, what you meant when you said um, people are able to, manage to have some kind of self-management.
1: You know, there was a fascinating study that goes all the way back to the post-Vietnam War. And that became almost one of the most archetypal studies that, that set this premise. And it was looking at returning soldiers who met, met every criteria of severe dependency of heroin, opiate, mm in country, but then when they came back to this country, they didn't exhibit the dependency, and they were able to kind of go on and live healthy lives, and by the way, not live in abstinence, or identify as being in recovery, or kind of coming into these streams to begin with. Why was that, you know? And just the fact that that study, you know, kind of remained in kind of cult status, and it was a very legitimate study, uh, is indicative of this to a degree also. Mm but it's understandable because for some people, yeah, you know, you're talking about the potential of life and death circumstances. So you Mm. don't want to drop or plant certain seeds, but at the same time, we're doing a terrible disservice at times, just making things very superficial because Mm. back to the why's beneath the what, if we don't understand why what's going on is going on, just addressing what's been going on. I would say, can't be part of the solution then. Yeah. if you're not understanding why you're not going to solve it with just the what
0: which leads me to the second point you brought up the fact that the the boom in the self-help industry is giving people so many tools to self-diagnose their why and to address those deeper emotional, spiritual, mental why's that perhaps there is a degree there of people finding their own recoveries through just self-help, mm-hmm. ultimately, yeah.
1: Absolutely. The word fitness is a, is a fascinating word, right? You know, back to, you know, the mindset behind it. I'm not just talking about, like, a gym dude or do that, you know, but just this idea of even, like, from an environmental standpoint, you know, is it the habitat? Is it exhibiting, you know, is it healthy? Is it exhibiting a level of fitness? When you look at it from that perspective, you can use that context of fitness in a lot of ways you know assessing somebody's mental fitness their emotional fitness their spiritual fitness you know and that's a really important context to look at things.
0: so a term that i've you know heard being used more often is early exeter the idea that if we're if if prolonged kind of Abuse or use of a substance kind of typically leads to more acute problems with that substance if it's a problematic substance. Um, the idea of this an early exeter and I think you mean be, I mean being somebody who kind of like arrests that or recognizes that pattern and kind of like gets out before it gets that bad. I certainly identify myself in that way in many ways, and I think that I've realised as well that this. So the curious conversation is very much geared to facilitating that for people. You know? It's like, yeah, if you're if you're questioning, if you're curious, then chances are something's off, right? Something's Mm -hmm. off. And so here's a chance for us to look at that and look at that why underneath the what before it gets really bad. Um and I wonder if you yeah, I could just speak a bit to the benefits, I suppose, of of helping of of being that person yourself, of helping other people in your community or your family or your other, otherwise immediate environment to to do an early exit.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think another way of looking at early exit is really going back to what we were talking about earlier, examining ways in which we can kind of screen, you know, intervene mm. earlier, understand and, you know, or prevent, not in the Nancy Reagan-esque way of prevention, mm. but more in the medical way of prevent You know, I mean, we don't, have the rate of you know, heart disease that we used to have, obesity, diabetes, you know, a lot of issues that used to be tremendous issues you know, affecting societal health aren't to the same degree anymore. I mean, really to an exponentially effective level because of early intervention and preventive techniques, mm-hmm. mechanisms that have been put in place throughout mm-hmm. society. If that were to be done, then yeah, you'd see a lot more early exiting, um, or a lot more support behind it. But another part of, you know, the conversation is looking at the labeling of things and the kind of benchmarking of, you know, how we label it and how we understand back to the stigmatization, you know. And and Another thing I want to kind of be cautious about is I can come across at times sounding like anti-traditional, anti-12-step per se. I'm not at all. I'm very pro-unconventional, very pro-out-of-the-box, and most importantly pro-things coexisting that can coexist, not having to be exclusionary to the other. That being said, one, I think, challenge that AA or 12-step fellowships posed on that kind of societal level was benchmarking um, a perception of this disease in a certain way that became binary you either are or you aren't you know thus the identification I'm an alcoholic mm. that isn't me mm. um, And a lot of the the narratives behind that is I knew from my very first dream. Mm -hmm. So there was almost back to that narrative, back to that ideology, a benchmark that was set of early exit is impossible because you were already, you know, from the moment you started, you were kind of predestined to do this. Um, But stripping back that ideological side of things and getting a greater understanding of the practical, um, the physiological, the psychological and all the different dynamics let us understand things a lot differently so yeah you know i think there's a lot to be said about the early and that's what a lot of this is about changing the conversation uh, you know is the conversation really about and is the epidemic really you know the substance epidemic or is it an epidemic of let's say back to mental and emotional unfitness um you know individual unawareness you know all of those things so if we become more mentally fit emotionally spiritually fit if we become more self-aware we're gonna have far more opportunities and ways in which we can't really exit because we'll start to recognize and back to you know why things like sober curious are so great because it gives us a portal into Addressing and looking at these things without the picture already being set of well, you've got to be a fall down alcoholic. You know, there's the picture of you're not a real alcoholic, so don't even ask the questions type of thing. Yeah, Um,
0: yeah, great. And this brings me on to the question of like how we can perhaps intervene or say something if we see somebody that we know or somebody that we do that we love and this is you know something I do get asked often how can I broach this subject with someone who I see struggling who is maybe unaware of it who maybe doesn't know how to or think they can get help or even need to get help like what's a way without being too heavy handed to bring this up with loved ones who we see struggling who we see could benefit from exiting right now before things get any worse
1: I think first and foremost it's engaging a dialogue not presenting an opinion or you know <laughs> self-diagnosing and telling somebody what the situation is and by engaging in the dialogue you're able to get back you know I love that word explore you know you're able to explore what's going on and I think that's where the real opportunity lies is you know, back to the wise and, and the dialogue can be more frequently effective when it's trying to unpack, you know, what's going on. That's just not working. And you know, why might that be going on? Why might you be feeling a certain way? Why might you be going through what you're going through? Um, then, you know, that can open the doors to a whole lot of different layers and levels of the discussion. Well, can we do something about it? Are you willing to explore, you know, addressing it? Um, but by opening just a dialogue that's very, you know, just open. And
0: non-judgmental. non-judgmental. Because I think for many of, you know, there's even a TV show, The Intervention, right? I think we've got, again, this very sensationalized idea of what and. and I'm doing air quotes intervention might look like you know we get everyone we we sort of like trap this person so they can't get away and then everybody comes and says we love you and we need to help you it doesn't have to be like it can be much gentler I suppose and much more of a an invitation for someone to share more vulnerably what's going on with you and in a way sort of showing up to them as a I'm here I'm here for you whatever that might be rather than a I'm here for you and I'm going to save you you know
1: (laughs) I'm here for you I'm going to save you and here's how I see the problem right here's how I'm going to tell you it is yeah (laughs) and there's something about yeah open dialogue because back to what we were saying earlier you know the overwhelming majority of us you know those who have been through this we know something's off you know and yes we don't want to be judged we don't want to be misunderstood you know we don't want to be sent down a path you know that we might you know have whatever feelings about but that doesn't mean we don't want to have a conversation you know mm-hmm. and we don't mm-hmm. want the opportunity to talk about or address we just don't know how mm-hmm. and most people don't know how so i think it's a great question and that's going back to what can be done on a greater almost societal level that can have an impact on that early intervention screening ways are ways to train people to have these conversations have these dialogues um, either giving somebody the, the context to explore it on their own or through you know direct conversation.
0: Mm, mm, I love that idea. So what would be just a way to like start a conversation with somebody?
1: I'm treading on eggshells <laughs> a little bit because we could go through all the different, you know, prepackaged kind of when you do this, it makes me feel this way mm. and all of those different things. But I think it's back to more of that individual nuanced approach and, uh, you know, what's going on in any situation between two people can be so individualized and nuanced also. You know, the history of the conversations, you know, and Mm -hmm. and engagement somebody Mm -hmm. has with one another that just kind of pre-scripting ways to address it. I think sometimes, well, let me back up. It might be more effective to look at, you know, principles and fundamentals behind objectives of what you're trying to achieve in the conversation versus scripting things to say. A lot of self-help books, a lot of, like, people who could probably phrase things a lot better than I can you know from that perspective but I like looking at the mechanics of what you're trying to accomplish with the conversation and that's connection understanding conveyance of empathy um, conveyance of allegiance and agency to the individual and a shared desired outcome those I think are really important components sometimes more so in certain words because then you can open up the whole can of worms at metacommunication and you know if we're already talking about this stuff chances are there's been a bunch of shit that's happened already <laughs> so there might be some minefields that exist and so it, it, yeah. it's complex back yeah. to another you know it's complex all complex it's a no but I really bearings. like the way you
0: frame that and something else that comes up is you know somebody who has perhaps um is changing their use of the substance, but they're in a relationship with someone that maybe they used with a lot. Um, this is definitely something I experienced in my marriage. Like, my husband now doesn't drink, but in the beginning, when I was first really going on the sober curious path, there was some dissonance, you know. He still wanted a certain kind of lifestyle. I wasn't really that into that, and so there was a period of negotiating mm-hmm. what was going on there. And that can be extremely daunting for people i was very fortunate and that he really wanted to meet me where i was at and was very open to um exploring this sober curious lifestyle and like i said it's kind of completely followed me down that path now but i know that that's not always the case and so often i hear from people who are trying to navigate those changing dynamics within a relationship particularly within a romantic partnership um so any any advice in those situations
1: but back to the nuances and the complexities of it like you know what's really going on in the relationship is it you know back to the ecosystem of the relationship is the drinking the problem or you know okay don't make you know isolate the drinking but is it still a toxic ecosystem you know is there still a toxic element Um, so there's so many different complexities to the conversations but I think you know back to the whys beneath the whats You know, if I could be kind of because I've gotten to know you, Simon, you know. There's a why with you guys, you know. Mm-hmm. You guys are in love. You wanted a shared, you know, vision of a future together that was more important than the what of am I drinking, am I not drinking. Um, and it just brought up different conversations, I think, you mm-hmm. know. Because back to, yes, there are times it's all about the drinking. It's all about the using, but more often than not, it's the presenting problem and issue is the drinking and using. But the solution and a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the evaluation and work is in everything that's not, you know, involved in the drinking or whatever mm. is going on. Mm. So it becomes really complex. But, but yes, you know, there are kind of back to the binary. You know, almost certain ways you can look at things. Like, is there a toxic element in this? ecosystem, yeah, you know, okay, you know, how can we start to evaluate that? Um,
0: We're all just so different as individuals that each relationship is so different. And if there's a situation that has arisen in your relationship where now one of you is not drinking, there's a big discrepancy personality-wise or lifestyle-wise, then that discrepancy is perhaps indicative of like something that was there all along that maybe the drinking that you were doing together was covering up or smoothing over in a way.
1: Right, you know, a couple is a unit, they're a system, right? So if, you know, what are things that promote fitness, health, you know, of that system? You know, there are a lot of really objective criteria behind evaluating that. Is there communication? Is there empathy? Is there, you know, a lot of different factors. There can be a lot of times none of that shit's there and they're stone cold sober, but is that any better? You know, I I don't know the answer to that. Mm. I mean, I kind of have opinions, but... uh, (laughs) So back to, you know, at times it's just, you know, there are just too many case studies or examples I can think of over my own career or even in personal life, you know, is it about one person drinking or using or not? Okay. That maybe steps towards a solution and in the right direction, but that's not the solution in and of itself.
0: Yeah. That makes sense totally (laughs) thank you but it is it's such a minefield I think and it's again it's something that really brings up a lot of fear in people if I change this about me how is it going to impact this ecosystem I love the way you describe the relationship as the ecosystem it's like I'm removing this thing it's obviously going to have an impact and I think yeah the advice I typically give people is what you're choosing your journey with substances is your journey that's make it about you Mm -hmm. And then whatever comes up as a result of that, know that without that substance in your system, you're already better equipped to deal with it because you're already calmer, less reactive, more clear, like hopefully better able to communicate what's really going on and be in in touch with what's really going on for you. Right. And to come at it from that place.
1: Yeah. I mean, because there could be, you know, if we were to look at like a case study or a group of case studies and examples there's a really varied playing field. Uh, there could be examples of situations that have worked where there's a couple, you know, one person is in recovery and maintaining abstinence and the other isn't, but they're very supportive. They're very, mm-hmm. um, things work well. There's no mm-hmm. threat. The mechanisms that are put into place are very protective and respectful. And there's no issue. Things yeah. work well. There are other times where you know, there's no communication and it's uh, shit.
0: Yeah. I've definitely so, heard uh, examples of that first one actually where people have gotten sober and their partner still drinks and yet it's done very respectfully on both sides. Yeah, maybe they and don't so in it front it of them. Maybe do, you know. Yeah, exactly. There are certain ways of kind of like negotiating that difference in lifestyle, yeah.
1: So it, it you know, it becomes more about I think back to that general overview of assessing the system you yeah. know, assessing the, the habitat and looking at the why's beneath the what, yeah. you know what's going on in the relationship and why is that really going on yeah. and is just addressing one factor one element going to solve the problem or not and yeah. what impact is that going to have
0: yeah minefield. <laughs> yeah. minefield um, so then I'd love to hear a bit about your opinion on why why the 12 step program or 12 step in general works for some people and not for others because it's widely perceived in um, recovery and even in like rehab outpatient situations as the kind of you know the gold standard like this is just what we do and yet it doesn't really work for everybody right it works for actually quite a small works in terms of being a long-term Cure um, for the disease of alcoholism. Um, it only works for actually a small percentage of people, although it does work for some people, which is great. And if that's you, then great. But why is it that it's that it works for some people and not for others? It, does it come back again to this just being such an individualized and a nuanced journey and path?
1: I think that's just it. And and back to what could be a very you know even nuanced conversation in and of itself. Um, is it about AA and NA or 12 steps or is it about the almost like cultural appropriation of it Hmm. um the fact that it became a gold standard the fact that there is a real societal and evolutionary aspect that the 12 steps have played on our understanding of the disease and these conditions and the effects it has on people or treatment of it um And also, most interestingly, is the way it kind of seeped into a lot of the almost like regulatory dynamics and compliance Mm -hmm. issues. I would be dealing with drug courts or doing reviews with clinicians from insurance companies who are asking questions based solely on, let's say, 12-step ideology that are meant to be used as evaluative criteria and assessment as to somebody's fitness, you know, and uh, their recovery. And I don't know if that's an appropriate thing or uh, accurate way to do that. So I think the fact that it became the gold standard is what's part of the problem. Mm. And, you know, it's put in a context that it's going to work. It's not going to do anything. It's the Is it going to provide a mechanism for somebody to be able to do the work? Um, mm. That might be a different question, but there are aspects and so many layers to the fact that by becoming a gold standard and a gold standard that was based on ideology and then deeper how it was like almost appropriated culturally.
0: What do you mean by that, by it being culturally appropriated?
1: That a lot of paradigms and practices kind of evolved that became almost institutional, Hmm. you know. Even down to, you know, if you look at some of the literature, original literature, these are merely suggestions. But if you look at the practice, as here's the way to do it and the only way to do it. Um, you know, the fact that it's put in a context of binary abstinence or not, you know, and then you know, recount you know, all these different things is also indicative of an appropriation versus the design of it. Um, I see, yeah. Because that none of that is, is embedded in either the literature or the traditions or, or other aspects of the twelve steps. But in practice, it kind of became that. By nature of it becoming that, it became an all-or-nothing type of thing. Where statistically, do more people have challenges with? Absolutely. And the twelve steps, also back to it, are a you know they're a, a mutual support group they're they're community based, they're a social entity. They're not a clinical entity. They're not a medical entity. They're not an even advisory entity. So when you get into those latter realms, then you're getting into dangerous ground because now you have, you know, ideology and belief dictating practices. And that's where you also run into a lot of problems. And that, you know, kind of feeds into the one one size fits all and Mm -hmm. you know one approach one Mm -hmm. answer Um, Mm -hmm. so I'm crafting the answer very delicately because you know again I don't want to be anti 12 step um, at all but I'm very anti things being posed as one way is the only way and back to giving a really simple answer where I haven't you know to your question why do some people like certain foods why do you know some people you know certain music resonate with them we're really talking about very complex, nuanced dynamics that you know you can't just apply to everybody. Yeah. But yeah, if that's the only solution and the yeah. gold standard, it's just not going to work for everybody. Yeah,
0: right. It's a personality thing ultimately, and we all have different personalities. Yeah. But like you say, when for the majority up up until very recently, I feel like any conversation around addiction treatment, recovery, rehab has kind of funneled people back into that then of course it's not gonna the, the the numbers are not gonna be great
1: yeah they're not gonna be great and a lot of times you know you can also set somebody up for failure or actually yeah. you know kind of backfire the situation is everybody who's going to enter into a treatment facility the same and they all have to identify with each other as the same and if they don't that's their reservation versus you know what you are on completely different journeys maybe this dude is exiting early and that woman over there <laughs> is you know taking a completely different path and it's completely valid it's all Also valid.
0: yeah uh, exactly
1: so it's it's really hard to i think the the bigger issue isn't is you know, what are the challenges with AA or NA, but more why as a society have we allowed it to become like such the gold standard Mm. and shape the model of our understanding Mm. and views and really even approaches to how we treat this disease Mm. or issue or epidemic. Because back to, you know, a lot of what's driving the problem aren't the quote-unquote diseased. You know, there might be a larger segment of the people who are, disordered That's very <laughs>
0: yeah i like that distinction just to finish up then um based on your personal experience and your experience in practice what do you think are the cornerstones of somebody having making a sustainable shift away from a problematic use of a substance or behavior let's say what, what would be the cornerstone pieces that you recommend I or that you've seen work
1: I think what we really have to be able to do is, on a very individual, complex way, evaluate what matters, what's going on, why is it going on, and how are things going to be able to kind of find a balance? Um, Because the word you just used is the key, sustain. Mm. What is going to be sustainable?
0: And when I use the word sustainable, I mean not just kind of like getting to a point that feels okay and like maintaining that but actually with every day or month or year that passes you're getting more and we're getting better and better you know for me sustainability in this sense is about just really the roots of the recovery process if we want to call it recovery just kind of growing deeper with each year that passes so that actually over time it's more and more solid and there's less and less likelihood that you're going to be blindsided by some kind of external events that are going to push you back into that abusive problematic behavior again
1: absolutely that's exactly it you know and that's resiliency
0: yeah resilience exactly and i so i think some of the things we've spoken about are like community um purpose there are sort of like other areas that i know you've You've shared with me before that you think are really important things for people to prioritize in their lives when they're committed to walking this path.
1: Yeah, because, you know, it's looking at it back to, you know, from a systems, a multidimensional approach. So mm. what are, you know, the aspects in those dimensions, connections, community? They fall under a dimension that can get mm. into, you know, things like purpose, meaning, um, those are just core dimensions that have to be looked at when you kind of lift up the hood in each of those dimensions you have you know the whole mind body spirit you know health you know fitness whatever it might be
0: it really becomes about every aspect of your life doesn't it which again is not to for anyone listening who that sounds daunting like wow every part of my life is going to have to change if I want to really like address this and make a shift going forward but that could also be quite exciting and when when i'm using the word change it's not like well you're gonna to have to like quit everything you're doing and start again from the ground up it's more in my experience it's been a subtle tweaking here and there more of a sort of like warmer colder going more towards what feels warmer what feels good and further away from the things that feel like they're linked to that the, the why that was underneath my wall. See this
1: goes back to like relationships, right? Our relationship with reality, you mm. know, and our perception thereof. Uh, is it accurate? You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, very often that's a huge thing that's way off, you know. Yeah. So it's like the anticipation is so much worse frequently than the doing. So sometimes it's just the way we're framing things. Yeah. I like, do I have to change every you know, the only thing you have to change is one thing, everything. Like, that yeah, I don't know about that. Like, you know, just yeah. like you said, start somewhere. Start doing some things. Um I don't think it's so simple as that. Uh, But back to, you know, maybe like ecosystems or just laws of nature, you know? If we want to just live with intention, you know, that's, I would say, another core element, you know, the things Mm. like purpose, intention, meaning, you know, have some kind of drive, a reason. You know, again, intention is a why.
0: Just being able to really connect to, I think, your why, For wanting to make this change, for wanting to move beyond this. Absolutely. Right? And maybe that why is something as simple as like, I don't want to wake up with a hangover ever again. Or maybe that why is something deeper, like I want to be a better parent to my kids. You know, whatever the why is, having that front and center of whatever changes you're putting in place.
1: Yeah. I mean, because another thing, you know, that's kind of parallel to this is, you know, we want to identify with what are the benefits of doing so. Yeah. You know, And this concept of trying to avoid a certain consequence versus achieve a desired outcome very often are two completely different things and, and come with a whole lot of different motivations and inspirations behind them. The latter is far more powerful. You know, if we're doing something because we really identify and internalize the benefits of doing it, it holds much greater meaning, you know, and and it also comes at a different perceived price and probably price of effort in many ways as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think I'm going to wrap it up there. Thank you so much for coming on to share your insights um and your experience of this this very so winding kind of path up, that many of us that we all hear listening to this um find us on um it's been really useful thank you so much
1: thank you for having me
0: and thank you as always for being here if you enjoyed this episode please share it with a friend you can DM me on Instagram if you have any specific feedback or to let me know about a topic you would like me to cover. And if you feel called, you can also leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find this series. It really does help. The Sober Curious podcast features original music and is edited by AlloAudio.com. That's A-L-O-E-Audio.com.